This Lawyer's Life has its very own podcast feed. If you want to hear more, find us wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. Welcome to This Lawyer's Life, a podcast of the New York City Bar Association. Your host, Gregory Binstock, is the City Bar's Director of Professional Development. Today, he sits down with Ellen Holloman, a global litigator and a partner at Cadwallader. With Greg, she digs into her mentorship style and how leaders benefit when they work with young talent. Clients evolve, situations grow and change, and sometimes you're not growing and changing as fast as the rest of the world is. So having a younger person around who trusts you enough to speak to you and, and who you trust and you value their opinion, that, that really is invaluable. Ellen underscores how litigators who are serious about winning are also serious about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. You have a legal problem and you have a room full of people who all went to the same schools, like have the same sort of background, come at problems with the same kind of perspective. I promise you there's something you're going to be missing. And for lawyers who are looking to build service into their careers, Ellen keeps it simple. There's always time in the day to do what's right. Always. You you always have time to do the right thing. Always. So sort of starting from that position, I always have time to do pro bono. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. Here's Gregory Benstock. Welcome, everyone, to the inaugural podcast of This Lawyer's Life, a professional development podcast where we talk with lawyers about seizing opportunities, learning lessons the hard way, and what makes them tick. I'm Gregory Binstock, Director of Professional Development here at the New York City Bar Association, and today I have the pleasure to chat with Ellen Holloman. You're a partner in Cadwallader's Global Litigation Group and a member of Cadwallader's Global Diversity Committee. You're also a member of the New York City Bar Association's Mergers, Acquisitions, and Corporate Control Contest Committee. The City Bar awarded you its Thurgood Marshall Award in recognition of your representation of post-conviction inmates. You've been named a three-time notable woman in law, a notable diverse leader in law, and a notable black leader by Cranes New York, and recognized by Law Dragon as one of the 500 leading lawyers in America. So welcome, Ellen. We are so glad to have you with us here, and thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure. I would do anything for the City Bar, and I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you so much. Oh, that's nice of you. Thank you. We're glad to call in the favor. <laughs> Let me start off by asking you about mentorship. Can you tell us a bit about your mentorship style, how you recognize new talent, and what you look for in a mentee? Of course. So it's funny. I was listening to your opening remarks. I'm very flattered. and just wanted to reiterate, it's such a pleasure to be here and to be a part of a series like this. I just want to just preface my remarks for some of maybe particularly the younger people who are listening to this by saying I've never learned anything other than the hard way. So (laughs) please don't worry about making mistakes in your careers and anything like that. Making mistakes is actually a very important part of growing. So anyway, so thinking about mentorship, I think my mentoring style is I really try to be open-minded. I think it's important to be available and patient and non-judgmental. When I have mentors, I'm in listening mode, actually, most of the time. And I try to ask a lot of questions to get people talking about themselves so I can understand their needs and sort of what they're looking for to see how I can be helpful, how I can be useful. And I've always tried to present you know, a range of options, particularly when people come to me with an issue, if they have a problem they need to solve or a situation they are approaching where they're uncertain you know, I think there's there's no one right way to, to do things. There's no one way to really do anything to approach any situation. 
So I really try to make sure that mentoring is not just me, blah, 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 talking to somebody. It's a real conversation where we go back and forth and get to teach each other. I think part of mentoring that's certainly been so rewarding for me is the reverse mentoring aspect of it. Because certainly as I age, I have a tremendous amount to learn and to continue to to learn. And it's not just having a younger person show me what the buttons on my phone do. You know, I think <laughs> there's a, you know, there's a tremendous amount of value from hearing, um, you know, just on the same exact daily news issue, the perspective of someone who's 20 years younger than you sometimes can really take you by surprise. They'll mention things that you just never really thought of. So it's very satisfying for me too, absolutely, to have mentees and to have those relationships. Ted Wilder has a formal mentoring program. And so that's firm-wide. And I'm also involved as a mentor within the litigation group. And what really jumps out at me is that new talent is curious. People ask questions. People are sort of interested in the way they approach problems. Like that, that to me, legal, being a lawyer, our legal profession, there are a lot of ways to describe it. But if you boil it down to sort of some of its most important elements, being a problem solver is really an important part of it. In order to do that, you do have to, you've got to be curious. You've got to ask a lot of questions. And particularly with younger folks, I do recognize that not everybody is comfortable right away airing their thoughts and asking questions because there's an implication. If you're asking a question, you don't know. And I think there's a lot of concern about not knowing. You don't want to look like you're foolish or you don't want to look like you're not keeping up with the rest of the group, especially in meetings. I've noticed young lawyers looking like they want to say something and then sort of sitting back because they're a little bit concerned about that. So one of the things that I do try to do is make myself available in office hours. I have designated office hours every month where I have my calendars blocked out. I have nothing else to do except the doors open. So if anybody wants to come and talk to me about anything, I'm sitting in here, I'm not doing any other work, and I'm just here to talk. And I think getting people more comfortable asking questions, not maybe just not in the meeting, but just asking questions at, at other times is, is really, really key. And the last thing I would say about mentoring in particular, what there are a lot of things about it that interest me, but I think women of color, people of color especially, you know, need mentors. And more than needing mentors, we also need sponsors. So some of the things that I look for in, in people that I'm, I'm working with as mentees, but also as sponsors, so I, I really want to see, I really want to see women advance in the profession because it's really important to me. And I certainly want to support all lawyers of color, but there is, I also, I don't limit myself just to that group of people. I actually, for my benefit, I've sought out and engaged in mentoring relationships with white men. For many reasons, it's important to have those lines of communication open. It's important, particularly also for some of those young men to see me as an authority figure. So I definitely do seek out those relationships and cultivate them. And they have been incredibly rewarding. You started off by mentioning that you learned everything the hard way <laughs> and, and making mistakes. <laughs> and we love hearing about mistakes on This Lawyer's Life. And you also mentioned that people particularly lawyers, have a hard time with mistakes. It's hard in this world to admit when you're wrong, to admit when you don't know something. And yet we all have to have our career paths. We all need to trip and stand up again. Can you give us an example of a mistake and how you learned something the hard way? I think that resonates with everybody. Oh, absolutely. So one of the first cases that I was really in charge of as a much, much younger associate where I was going to be running points on the litigation 
was very fast moving. It had regulatory aspects, investigation aspects from agencies we were dealing with, and also planning for litigation. So the first weekend that we had the matter come in, I had everyone on the team come into the office and we assigned tasks and we started working and researching. And in a weekend's time, we put together a very large, very detailed, thorough memo on the subject. So that we, I think I felt like I covered every single angle, thought of everything, kept everyone up 20 hours a day. And then on Monday, the client called nine in the morning. I'm ready with my massive document and asked us for bullet points on what uh, the issues really were. And I think in my eagerness, do you know what I mean? To get ahead of it, to do the best job I possibly could. I forgot one of the most important things, which is to serve the client. Like be really in tune with what the client needs. And that was something where I really learned from that experience to to make sure that before I embark on any sort of big project like that, that I've got everyone sign off, that I'm doing exactly the right thing, that I'm not wasting anyone's time, I'm not wasting the client's money, I'm not wasting anyone's energy. And I think that that sense of eagerness and like wanting to seize the reins, like you also have to be reasonable and sensible about the kind of work that you're going to be doing. So just, and I have a million other examples, by the way, that's like the first thing that comes to So mind. many mistakes. Don't yeah, exactly, exactly. You're being honest. Yeah. yeah no, I appreciate most, that. The most important thing, right? You make mistakes. You're not going to die. I'm still here. Like they might be embarrassing, right? I think it's very important to be prepared. I always try to prepare myself and be very dedicated to that. And if you lose at that point, well, especially being a litigator, I hate losing. It's the worst feeling in the world. But if you lose, at least you're not embarrassing yourself. You know what I mean? That's the thing. Like you prepared, you've tried. So making mistakes, put it in the same context. Like they're inevitable. Learn how to do them gracefully, how to recover and move on quickly. And you talked about the circular nature for you of the mentor-mentee relationship as I hear a the FDNY go by my window. Is there something that recently a mentee taught you that you can share with us? Something you learned when you were trying to be a mentor, but you realized the mentee actually had something to share? It's very important to have particularly younger mentees and people in your life as a lawyer because clients evolve, situations grow and change. And sometimes you're not growing and changing as fast as the rest of the world is. So having a younger person around who trusts you enough to speak to you and and who you trust and you value their opinion, that, that really is invaluable. And the situation that I'm thinking of is that very recently we handled a matter for a client where... It involved issues of gender markers, non-binary issues, things that when I was growing up, nobody discussed. It's not that it's not that these things didn't exist. Of course they did, very much so, but it just wasn't widely discussed. So having a for younger people, this is much more in their vocabulary. This is something they are accustomed to it, they have incorporated it, they have a great understanding of it. And having a younger person on the team assisting me with understanding pronoun issues, explaining like what does it mean to be non-binary? Why does it matter in a workplace? How does this relate to the legal issues that we're working on? And asking me important questions about whether or not have we explored our own unconscious biases with respect to these issues? Are we approaching this? as counsel in a way that's really going to be what the client requires. I think I was aware of these issues, but just the perspective of a younger person who has who has come to these issues a little bit, I, I had to be taught about these issues. And for a younger person, they sort of live with it in a very different way. I think older people all should sort of sit back and listen to, you know, to what they have to say about this. There's so much to learn. 
This is fascinating because there are so many firms now that are trying to instill these values and this knowledge from the top down. It sounds like you're learning about it from the bottom up, you're hearing from your mentees. How do you incorporate that? You're part of the diversity leadership at your firm. Is there a way that you incorporate that into your teaching so that it's not coming from necessarily only a DEI expert who comes in and shows up for a half day CLE and says, this is what pronouns are like, and this is what it means in law firm life these days, get into it, versus (laughs) learning about it from your everyday experiences and those folks who you're mentoring? Absolutely. Diversity, equity, and inclusion issues have interested me for years. And I've seen the conversation when I was growing up, the conversation was about affirmative action. Then the terminology shifted to diversity. And then we've got diversity and inclusion. Now Now, it's belonging is my understanding. Exactly. Like it continues to evolve. And that really is point. This is, there's not one way to do any of these things. We are going to continue to learn about them and to develop these concepts and ideas as we go along. There's, it's not static. So I worked on a, a treatise and did the inaugural chapter for diversity, equity, and inclusion. I had a lot of time to think about these issues, research them extensively. And it's extremely important for our clients, not just like our law firm life and us getting along with each other as we, and creating an environment, it's just like getting along, it's more to it than that, right? You want an environment, especially as we return to work and we, because like, Cadwallader is in the process, we have a hybrid workplace. There are many people who come in three days a week and there are many others who come in five days a week. We're in flux as we recover from COVID. There's no, again, no one way to do things. And I think we don't just want an environment where we all get along. We want to create an environment where people can do their best and most excellent work. That's what our clients deserve. And and the best environment where it it is respectful, it is tolerant, it is open. And I think so diversity, equity, inclusion issues are situated right in the middle of creating a workplace where we can give our clients the greatest work product and give them the highest levels of service that we possibly can. It relates back to what I was mentioning before about the young person that I was working with on that matter. It was an investigation. It involved those issues. And having that perspective wasn't just educational to me as someone in a mentor-mentee relationship with this young woman. It was important to our client. It was crucial to the advice that we were able to give. This is not 20 years ago. These issues pop up in the workplace. They need to be handled correctly. They need to be handled sensitively, but they need to be handled correctly. That's really the most important for clients. And if you don't have an understanding of these issues, if you're unwilling to talk or think about them, you're not going to be giving the best kind of advice. And so maybe a young person says, oh, I'm a second or third year associate. I don't have much to add. You would be surprised, especially on issues like this, how important your unique perspectives are as an older millennial or a young Gen Z type person dealing with someone like me as an old, as a Gen X, like we, we have a, we had just different experiences. So I tremendously appreciate the fact that I work with associates who are willing to tell me if I'm doing the wrong thing, but if I'm, it's, especially when it comes to language, that I think it's so funny because we started talking about mistakes <laughs> and you have to be, you have to be unafraid of mistakes. So I think as our language, particularly around these issues, for example, as that develops and as it becomes more common, I think it's probable that all of us are going to say the wrong thing at some time. We're all going to use the wrong word at some time or apply the incorrect pronoun or the the incorrect terminology. As long as you're not coming from a hateful place, 
Do you know what I mean? You're coming from a place of ignorance. I say this to young people I work with all the time. Like, I'm old. I don't know anything. I'm really ignorant about this stuff. I need you to tell me. Because but if you're I, curious, like you yes, said. Yes, yeah. I need you to tell me. Because if I say, if I'm using the wrong word, it's not because I have a like a, a, any kind of bad feelings about this. It's just I'm, I don't know. Please correct me. Because the worst thing I could think of is that I would do that in front of someone who would then feel excluded. That I would do that in front of someone and make them feel like, and it would just come from a mistake. It would come out of my ignorance. So that's why I really appreciate the young people I work with. And I've tried to make sure that they're comfortable enough with me that they can say, hey, don't use that word. Or this is the word that we use now. I appreciate being corrected that way. And I rely on them to do it so that I can stay current. And again, it's not just about our workplace at Ken Wilder. It's about the advice that we can give to our clients. You've come back to the point of what services the client. And I've heard you mention that a few times. I think we think of some of these diversity issues or even affirmative action as saying, well, it's for the benefit of the firm. The firm will be have more perspectives to think about things or the college will be more diverse. And so ergo, automatically, that makes it a better environment. But I think some people don't necessarily appreciate how it ties into what's best for the client. Can you speak to that and how that looks in a global law firm like, like Cadwallader or any place you've worked at? Absolutely. I think... My practice involves a significant amount of my work is focused on financial services institutions. So for those of us who are in that field, the concept of diversifying your portfolio to manage risk is not a foreign concept. It's, and so it's, I think it's beyond cavail that diverse perspectives tend to promote better outcomes and tend to reduce risk. So that plays out in terms of the kinds of advice people come at at legal problems from all different perspectives. And so it's, I'm going to stay away from the cliche of saying all perspectives are valid, but the more perspectives that you have, I think the more contingencies that you can think of, the better shape your advice is going to be. So we have a diverse group here at Ted Waller and we prioritize diversity here. Again, for the reasons I mentioned, it's, it's better to work in a place that where people feel included, people will do their best work in a respectful and tolerant workplace. But for what our clients require, nobody hires Cadwallader to solve easy problems at a leisurely pace, okay? Like they hire us because it's hard, because it hasn't been done before, because it's important, and because they need the answers quickly. And I think the more, in many ways, the more voices, the more people looking at the problem from all different angles will help us solve and untangle the knots, solve the problem. So it's very important for what we can do for our clients. And I think also, particularly our clients demand it from us. We, most of our clients, I, I, all of them, share our values on this issue. And it's, it's very important in general to work with people who share your values. I don't think I've ever heard anyone make that connection between diversifying assets as a financial matter, which everyone's sort of familiar with, and making that comparison to diversifying your human resources in that way. I think that that's fascinating. Let's shift gears here. I want to ask you, Ellen, about whether you've encountered imposter syndrome, one of the phrases that we're hearing a lot about these days. We also talked about some of your mentees. When did your achievements feel like enough? I could read your bio out loud and it would impress both of us very much and all of our listeners. How does one move from one space to the other mentally and as a lawyer generally? I appreciate that. I think some, I, someone recently asked me, like, how does it feel to like, have made it to the top. And I tend to die laughing because I don't think I'm anywhere close to the top. <laughs> it's like so much more to do and so much more to go. And 
I'm just getting started. I really do. But if this is the top, I just would say very quickly, there's so much room up here. You know what I mean? There's so much room up here. And my goal really would be to make sure that there, when I do retire, that what I've left behind and what I've helped to build would be more and more women at the top. That and that would be true achievement. I guess that's when it would feel like enough. For imposter syndrome, what is that, right? It's, I think you could define it as just an inability to perceive that what you've achieved, like your success, anything like that is deserved as a natural result of your skills, your talents, your hard work, and your ability. And I would say just right at the outset that women and attorneys of color in particular can find ourselves in situations where we are explicitly or implicitly told that we are where we are for reasons other than our skills and talents. And that's sort of this backlash, again, starting with affirmative action. I can't tell you, I've had a few experiences, one in particular I'm thinking of, where someone told me with an absolutely straight face looking me in the eyes that they were opposed to affirmative action, but they did believe in diversity. And trying to, it wasn't worth my time. That was not a good use of my time to explain to that person what was categorically wrong with their thinking. But the notion really is that diversity is seen as sort of a voluntary, salutary good, where something like affirmative action, which I understand is controversial and coming up this month, it's June. Well, right now, we're expecting a Supreme Court opinion about this issue soon. Affirmative action is mandatory. In terms of it's about diversifying, particularly when it applies to government contracting, it's requiring people to ameliorate the effects of segregation, which was a result of slavery. So having it be compulsory on one hand versus optional and nice to have on the other. Anyway, <laughs> the whole point is imposter syndrome is a particular issue for many women and for attorneys of color. And I think I experienced it, though. I came at it in a slightly different way, only because, and this is a very personal answer, I come from a highly accomplished family where people are very high achieving and have done incredibly interesting and actually important things. And I think having a father like the father I had, you can go two ways. You can either really try to distance yourself and kind of try to, it's so hard to be your own person standing in the shadow of somebody like that, or else for me, what I did was just embrace the fact that I could never achieve all the things that he did. It was impossible. And I was free like to sort of be my own person and to, to just do what I wanted to do without having to worry about living up to those sorts of expectations. So I, I very much felt like when I started work at, I started work at Sullivan and Cromwell, I didn't feel like I didn't belong. I, they, it was really a wonderful place to work. And I have many friends to this day. I was just texting like two hours ago with somebody I know from Sullivan and Cromwell for 25 years. So to this day, like I still have those relationships and still very close and still feel very good. I didn't experience anything like that when I was there, but I think that when I, I was once in a situation where after I left Sullivan and Cromwell, I was in a situation where it was explicitly said to me that the, that the firm was not at all interested in diversity and the notion was that I was only there for those purposes. So that was, it's, yeah, that was that was a very interesting experience. Really, someone telling me that the firm was not interested in diversity and didn't want to support it. And that person, she has had to eat those words many times since. I took that as a, 
it was a wonderful inflection point for me where I simply sort of looked around and said, I don't need to be here and put up with this. I can move on. I left and I came to Cadwallader where remarks like that would never be made. And that doesn't reflect anyone's values or beliefs. And I've never had to feel like I didn't achieve my own success. So I, I think being in the right environments, imposter syndrome it won't come up as much as it might otherwise if you are in an environment that values diversity or that, that, in, that is interested in those issues. So I think when it happens, many people of color experience it. And when it happens, you kind of have to be your own cheerleader in many ways. You, you should turn to the people who you love, who give you good advice and share those experiences. Don't sit alone with the, the, sort of the shame or the pain of that. I think that's when, when someone makes you feel that way. You shouldn't keep it in and you shouldn't think it's your problem. You should talk to other people about it because it's completely unwarranted and undeserved. And then to get to the second part of your question, it's, yeah, and I think I started this way. Yeah, it's never enough. You know, (laughs) it's never enough. I think uh, I always feel like there's more to do, more to read, more to learn, um, you know, new things to try. And one of my favorite things to do is I spend a lot of time collaborating with other groups in the firm, our financial services group, our capital markets group, our corporate group. I'm a litigator, but I'm learning more and more about what they do and how they do it. So, yeah, it never stops. And that's not a bad thing. Like, not stopping learning is actually a very, is a very good thing. You contributed to the inaugural chapter on diversity and inclusion to the fifth edition of commercial litigation in New York State Courts, which is considered the preeminent treatise on the subject. I wanted to ask you, can you help us understand the connection between diversity and inclusion and litigation? And I guess specifically, I'm wondering, I think most lawyers will have some sense of that first question, but specifically commercial litigation, I'm curious. Strategy. If I can sum it to one word, strategy. If you have a legal problem, and you have a room full of people who all went to the same schools, like have the same sort of background, come at problems with the same kind of perspective, I promise you there's something you're going to be missing. There's some aspect of an issue that's going to be missing. The world is changing. Clients are changing. The world is becoming more diverse. Our city is becoming more diverse. And I think if you as a lawyer or as a law firm do not actively pursue opportunities to diversify your talent pool so that you can diversify and improve the strength of your advice, you are missing out. And again, for many of us, particularly those who serve, if we work for public companies, if our clients, we serve financial services institutions, that is absolutely part of their stated values. They have it built into their ways of working. And if you as a lawyer become out of step with your client, you're in in quite a bit of trouble. And I think returning it to litigation, having the, and, and, and the initial point of strategy, coming at a problem from various different angles, you know, you need to be able to Think not just what your what will your adversary do with your argument? How will they treat it? What is the judge going to think? How about twelve people on a jury? You know who come from all different kinds of backgrounds. If you're doing jury trial work, that starts day one. You know the case, and the day your that case walks into your office is the day that you should start planning for what you're going to say when you stand up in your opening statement. You need to start thinking about your themes. You need to start thinking about how to present a problem in a, in a distilled down way that will make sense to 12 people, 12 of your fellow New Yorkers riding the bus in the subway to work. How is this going to make sense to them? And so if you approach some of these problems from the lofty perspective of just a Wall Street firm and someone with an Ivy League education and from exactly the same background, you're in trouble. 
you will be in trouble. It's a very important part, I think, of litigation to try to anticipate what's three turns down the road, not just what's right in front of you. You're thinking about what this looks like three years from now, not just three weeks from now or a motion away. And having diversity of viewpoint will make your advice stronger and will give you better outcomes. And again, I think the studies on this are pretty clear and pretty uncontroversial. I don't think anyone is seriously debating whether diverse inputs produce better outcomes. So it's that diversity of thought. It's that diversity of spreading risk. And I guess you answered my question, but I was thinking as you were talking, it's the same as anything else. And the fact that it's, you're a lawyer, a high-powered lawyer in the financial services industry, which seems like it's so high echelon that a lay lawyer wouldn't necessarily understand it. But as you said, it still comes down to basic litigation strategy, a lawyer, a judge, 12 jurors, it still has to come down to that. Yeah. And you have to put yourself in the shoes and adopt the perspective of your potential jury pool. I mean, you really have to think about it and think about who is going to sit on your jury. And it's probably not going to be 12 other Wall Street law firm partners. So, so, So if you are serious about being a trial lawyer in front of a jury, there, there's like if you try cases in bankruptcy court, for example, those are just before a judge. If you there's there are courts in Delaware. If you try cases in Chancery, my firm does that quite a bit. Those are almost like like very highly organized arbitrations. So there's no opening statements. There's nothing. There's just there. It's a little bit different. If you are a trial lawyer with a trial lawyer's practice, that necess- necessarily involves a jury, and that necessarily right there means that you need to have diversity in your perspectives because you need to appeal. At the end of the day, no matter how much work you do, you are going to rest your case in the hands of 12 people. So if you can't relate to them, if if you can't understand them, if you can't understand their perspectives, I wish you all the best in your future endeavors. (laughs) I think being a trial lawyer will be very challenging for you. Fair enough. Let's talk for a bit about some extracurricular activities, although some would argue they're intra. I wanted to ask you about your experience working on city bar committees and how that's shaped your career. Oh, it's terrific. So I've, I've worked on the M&A committee and also on the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Committee. And I, I will briefly tell my just my city bar story. I'd mentioned I started my career at Sullivan and Cromwell, and that's when Mike Cooper was the president of the city bar. This is many, many years ago. And Mike was such an impressive, inspiring, just wonderful human being. And he went out of his way. This is a very busy person who had tremendous responsibilities. And I think every second of his day was accounted for. I remember when I started at SNC and I remember the knock on my door, sharing an office with another first year. And Mike Cooper walked in and said, may I sit down? May I talk to you? And he spent half an hour talking to us about the city bar. He went door to door, like talking about how important it was and making sure we understood. And for someone like him, I was so impressed. So if he told me it was something I ought to do, I figured I ought to do it. So it was the very first bar association that I joined. And the thing that I loved about it the most, it's hard to break it down, but okay. So I think the favorite thing I had, particularly when I was younger, was walking into that beautiful building out of like the madness and craziness of Midtown, of Grand Central, like just walking into that gorgeous building and feeling like I belonged, like this was my quiet place in Midtown where I could sit in the library. This was in the old days, we did books, you know, but you could quietly sit, you could think, you could, it was a wonderful place. It was just a place of reflection and also being surrounded by people 
who were in your same profession, who had things to offer you, who you could learn from. That was that that was my favorite part was just walking into the building and feeling that sense of welcoming and, and belonging. And then the second favorite part was just getting a break. This was before we had Zoom and we'd be working with the Sullivan Cromwell with a lot of hours working hard. And it was great to be able to say to your senior associate, like, listen, I got to leave at five today. I'm going for a CLE. And it was so terrific, like going up to the city bar and doing those live CLEs. They used to give you the best little handouts. There were there was a lot of stuff to read and there were things you could read back on the train back. And, and I didn't pay you to say any of this. This is no, your just true. off the cuff remarks now about the CLE programming at the city bar. Yeah, no, I'm kidding. It's the best. You know what I mean? It really yeah. is the best. It was so no, I appreciate fun. That. And it was so it was very important to me. I think everyone does stuff by Zoom now, which I think is great. And also there was a health, obviously, like an important health reason. But I hope and I encourage everybody take a break from your desk. Okay. Like just, even if you just do one CLE a year in person, make it at the city bar, get yourself on the subway, get up there and just enjoy that environment. There's coffee and cookies. Programs are always super interesting. It's so much fun and you will learn a tremendous amount. And if you ever need ethics credit, somehow there always seems to be something on offer at the city bar. There's always a way to get your ethics credit done. So that was my favorite thing. So, or my second favorite thing, I should say. And so committee service was the obvious next step. And you know, I always had an attachment to the city bar for all the things that it has done for me, particularly with respect to learning. And so many important programs go on. The securities, the, the securities law institute, the employment law institute is so terrific. The people who put those together, I've learned a tremendous amount. But I think committee service, that's just a way for you to, for younger people, I couldn't encourage it more. It's really something I know everyone feels very busy. But working and working on a city bar committee, you're actually investing in yourself. You're not just giving up some hours like, oh, I have to do this. This is an investment in you. When you serve on a city bar committee, you're going to meet your peers in the profession. It's very important to start building those relationships. And I know I'm, I'm, this is probably making sense to older practitioners, but for younger folks, it's not enough to just read the cases. It's not enough to know what the contracts say. You really do need to take some time to invest in your professional network. And the City Bar is one of the best places to do that and serving on those committees because you will be with like-minded people who are from similar firms and different, so it's not all the same. And you will be focusing on problems and issues that you all have a common interest in. So part of being a lawyer is lifetime learning and committees are focused areas of study where you are promoting excellence for others in the profession in your chosen topics. So they're put on pro. So if you're a member of a committee, you plan programs, you plan events. You, we we wrote letters to the SEC routinely on on some of the committees I've been on. It's there's so much of interest to do, and I, again, I can't. I could talk about this for hours. I'm going to stop in a second because <laughs> to me, this is it's such. It is not extracurricular, and I, I would encourage people to think your bar your bar participation, and if you're lucky enough, your bar service is not extra. It is part of your professional development. It is part of you becoming a better lawyer every day so that you can continue to give clients better and better advice and you can become a better and better counselor. So don't think about it as something you have to do to tack on to the end of the day. It's part of your day. And for young lawyers in particular, learning to manage your time, don't forget to allocate some time for yourself. You know, that, that this is time. Serving on a city bar committee is time for you. It's not just time to, to something else. You are investing in yourself by doing it. 
That brings me right to my next question. You also spend a lot of time in your career working on pro bono matters. You do board service. I wanted to ask you, and for our younger listeners, younger attorneys, where do you find the time for it? And how do you get other lawyers engaged and motivated to understand that's a critical part of their growth? I think just from the way that I was raised, the way that I was taught, I alluded to my family earlier. I've just always known that there's always time in the day to do what's right. Always. You, you always have time to do the right thing. Always. And starting at Sullivan and Cromwell, being here at Cadwallader, the values are exactly the same, which is that clients' inability to pay shouldn't be a barrier to receiving the highest quality of legal services. So sort of starting from that position, I always have time to do pro bono. Uh, when I was a younger person, I used to take on the cases myself, and it was really a way to build my skills, like learn how to interact with clients, like learn how to organize a case and how to develop a strategy. Pro bono cases, you have a little bit more room to run as a younger person. So that they're very good in terms of building skills. But as an older person, it's as an older attorney, it's a joy to supervise these matters for younger attorneys and to see how to see, first of all, to serve the clients. We, we have a lot of opportunities here at Cadwallader for pro bono service. And to, to serve the clients is really the most important thing. My most recent pro bono matters, are, I'm working for two Afghani refugees who at the fall of Kabul jumped on a plane with their American friends. They've been working with Americans for 20 years at that point. And they had to flee the country because there were Taliban death squads looking for any Afghani military, any Afghani police officers. Helping them navigate the immigration system here in the United States, getting them settled. And I already have a future plan thinking about their families who are still in Afghanistan, particularly both of them have wives and one with a young child. I think about that all the time. I actually, I woke up thinking about that a couple of days ago. Like it, it is just as important to me as the matter that I was working on right before you and I got on and started talking about this. It is just as important to me. But again, always have time to do pro bono work, always have time to, to help people who might need help. I think that the legal profession, maybe I'm just naive, but I still think of it as very much a helping profession. That really is the point. You're solving problems for people who need assistance, and particularly in cases for people who can't afford to pay. Sometimes they need your help more than anything. There's always time to do it. If it means that you work late, okay. If it means that you work on Saturdays or Sundays, okay. But it, it, it gets done and you give it the same amount of attention that you would give to your paying clients. I always say that Ted Wilder doesn't really have pro bono clients. We have clients, you know, and it's, we treat them exactly the same and, and worry about them and do our same absolute best for them. And it's hard to imagine not doing pro bono work, just being raised in a spirit of public service, starting with my family, starting my career at Sullivan and Cromwell, coming to Cadwallader. It's always been on the table. It's, it's always been important. It's always been invaluable. But I have no trouble getting pro bono work into my life, not at all. That's wonderful. I think it's easy to forget sometimes that lawyers are powerful and people need help. And that's just always something that we can keep in mind. Let me ask you this. Returning to the issue of affirmative action, you mentioned this, and I hadn't had the chance to ask you yet, that the Supreme Court is examining affirmative action. 
We don't know at the time of this taping how the decision will come down. But as a firm leader, I wanted to ask you your perspective broadly, if you can share it. And more specifically, obviously, the affirmative action cases will most resoundingly affect colleges and universities. But how do you see it playing out in the law firm atmosphere as far as that the effect will resound both up and down the educational chain and the the job chain, if you will? How do you see that affecting your work in diversity at the firm? It's a terrific question. And, you know, it's very timely. The city bar is putting on a presentation exactly about this. And that's the diversity, equity and inclusion committee of which I'm lucky enough to be a member. And it's a crucial issue. It will affect higher education, obviously, as you said, that that will be the immediate effect. And, you know, depending on how the opinion is written, it could become illegal for schools. You know, it was Harvard and um, UNC, so that's the oldest private school and the oldest public school for secondary higher education in America were sued. So it could have the result that um, considering race in college admissions in any sense will become illegal. So that's you're just talking about education right now at this point. But again, as you pointed out, that would be like the tip of the spear that is immediately going to impact workplaces. If you think about how most, certainly how Ted Lauder recruits, many other law firms do, many companies do, they recruit directly on campus. For Ted Wallader, it's law school, but for, you know, let's say for JP Morgan, the world's largest financial services institution, they have a real, they look for the best and the brightest and they go right to college campuses to do their recruiting. So what is going to be the impact on, on college campuses of this decision? Right now, it's not immediately clear. I think that the, the Fisher case is very illustrative. So that was the last time the Supreme Court considered affirmative action in higher education, diversity in higher education, and upheld it. And the evidence there was not, it was interesting. It was very well developed at the district court level. And I'm using sort of soft numbers, but the plaintiffs were arguing that there were black candidates, black and brown candidates who were admitted who had lower scores than the white candidate who was the plaintiff who was suing. And they looked at exactly the class that was being admitted. And they found that there was something like, and again, these numbers are made up basically, but they found that maybe there were, let's say, 50 or so black and brown candidates who had lower scores than she did. And they also found that there were like 150 white candidates who had lower scores than she did. The evidence does not support the premise. You know what I mean? Like that, I think that's very, very important. So I'm not necessarily concerned that suddenly there's going to be a massive drop in, in students who are coming to school. I'm not necessarily worried about that. Yet, the evidence that I'm aware of doesn't suggest that's actually going to happen. But you do worry just about the cultural impact of that, the whole notion that diversity is not a value, it's not going to be important. Like, how does that impact campuses? How does that impact learning? That's, and, how, and again, how does that impact workplaces? So could it be, could it be possible that there will be some who says that the women's leadership initiative discriminates against him. Are, are we going to see like, and that, that's like an employee resource group. So are we going to see like an employee of a firm say that this group that's meant to support and advance women is discriminatory toward him? Is that so far-fetched? I'm afraid not. I'm afraid not. And I think we're going to see some interesting things over, over the next year. Or so we're going to see how it plays out. But what I do know is that whether or not, I, I'm trying to think of the best way to put that. Like, for example, there's a diversity, board diversity law in California that was struck down that required a certain number of women to be on, on public company boards for California companies. And that law was struck down. And in the exact same week, 
Goldman Sachs celebrated putting its 100th female candidate on a board. And they, they revised their IPO guidelines. They said they wouldn't take companies public that didn't support women directors. Like they're doing that independently. They're doing that independently. I think it's going to be hard to reverse this wave of support for diversity. But Grutter is definitely something to be concerned about, to be very, very concerned about. And it's unfortunate because I think two steps forward and two steps back or two steps forward, one step back. I just wish progress could be consistent, but the older I get, I realize that you have to fight for it all the time. You really do. You have to fight for it all the time. You should never take it for granted. And you should always be concerned for the people who are coming behind you. Because I think people, for me anyway, I know people in front of me fought very hard to make sure I could be where I am. So now it's my turn to do that for people who are coming up behind me. Ellen Holloman, thank you so much for joining us on This Lawyer's Life. We really appreciate it. It is a pleasure. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to This Lawyer's Life. We are already planning more conversations with successful lawyers, and we want your help. If you have burning questions about professional development, share them with us by sending an email to thislawyerslife at nycbar.org. And don't forget to subscribe to This Lawyer's Life wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening to This Lawyer's Life. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher, or at our website at www.nycbar.org slash podcasts. This podcast was produced and edited by Eli Cohen.